Well, unfortunately, the girls aren't with me this morning. Uh, Steph's not feeling all that great. She's okay, but uh, she's got a little cold. And Lily, I was going to bring Lily with me, but she was still in bed at 8.30, so she takes after her father. Well, good morning. Christ is risen. Hallelujah. Indeed, he is risen, and he is risen not for his own sake, but he's risen for mission. Before we get into it, let us pray. Living God, with joy we celebrate the presence of your risen word. Enliven our hearts by your Holy Spirit. In the same way that you enlivened the hearts of those who first saw you alive again, enliven our hearts as we reflect on their testimony. May the end result be not only a willingness, but an enthusiasm and passion for sharing the good news of your resurrection life with others. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. The game of basketball played a major role in my life during my teenage years. I played on a traveling team for a few years, and each of us on the team had different skills we brought to the court. Some of my teammates could dunk the ball, even in the eighth grade. Surprisingly, I was not one of them. Others were sharpshooters from the three-point line. Others were great defenders. What was my skill, you ask? I. I had a uniquely impressive skill. No other person on the team possessed this remarkable trait. In fact, I was so talented in this one area that the coach wanted to ensure that I had plenty of time for it. Henry already knows what I'm talking about. My special skill was, any guesses? Cheering from the bench. That's right. Cheering from the bench. Let's go now. Stay focused. Great shot, Drew. Good hustle, Trevion. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Perhaps it was this childhood experience that first trained me to be a preacher. Now, eventually, I came to uh, question the decision of my coach. I began to question his logic. Think about it. He thought I was good enough to make the team, but not to play for the team. And it didn't take long for me to become a beggar from the bench. Come on, coach, put me in the game. Put me in the game. As I said, this was a traveling team. My poor, dedicated parents drove all around the state of Indiana to see just how much energy and athleticism and strength I could bring when I cheered for my teammates. If I were lucky, we'd be ahead by 20 points, or more likely down by 20 points, and with just minutes left in the game, I would get my time to shine. I was the Tommy Luce of the Howard County Huskies. That's a Purdue player for those who don't know. Put me in the game, coach. We're down by 20 points. How much worse could I make it? Of course, I never said any of these things out loud, but this was my normal internal dialogue from the bench. Put me in the game. This is a request never once uttered by the disciples of Jesus. Put me in the game, Jesus. Why? Because from the beginning, Jesus puts his disciples in the game, and he never takes them out. It's a matter of principle, Jesus. Ever since those first disciples, Jesus puts every one of his disciples in the game, so to speak. There is not one follower of his that he leaves on the bench, ever. 
What game am I now talking about? I'm talking about the game called mission. Christ's mission. Advancing the mission of Jesus in the everyday world in which we find ourselves. That's the game. We are all sent into this game by Jesus himself. There are no bench warmers on Team Jesus. What is the object of the game? The object of the game is to make disciples of Jesus. And how do you play? Here are the instructions. Matthew 28, starting with verse 16. Listen for the good news. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the good news we have received in which we stand and by which we are saved. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Immediately after the resurrection of the crucified, Jesus puts his disciples in the game. Without delay, he thrusts them onto the playing field of the world, rather, the mission field of the world. The same thing happens today. Whenever someone becomes a student of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, a Christian, Jesus does not let them sit on the bench. Instead, the risen Jesus pushes them onto the field. As I said before, Christ is risen for mission. So immediately after his resurrection, what does he do? He gives his disciples a mission worthy of their lives. Go make disciples. So let me ask, are you a disciple of Jesus? Are you a Christian? If so, then you too have been commissioned by the risen Jesus to go and make other disciples. You too have already been sent onto the playing field, whether you know it or not. What will you do with Jesus' command to make disciples? What are you doing? What am I doing? Now you and I have two options, as I see it. We're, we're on the play, playing field already, thanks to Jesus. And now that we're in the game, we have two options. And here's the first option. Option number one, we can uh, sit on our hands. We can choose to play in the dirt and pick dandelions if we'd like. We can be like the six-year-old on the t-ball game, drawing circles in the sand. We can navel gaze, chasing one distraction after another, and we have so many distractions. Jesus puts us on the playing field, but he won't force us to make a play on the ball. He won't make us swing the bat. If we want, we can just watch all those pitches, cross the plate, and hope we get walked. However, if this is our approach to Christ's mission, it'll hurt the team. It will hurt the team, and it will hamper the mission. Or, or we can play to win. Option number two, 
play to win. Get your head in the game. When we get our heads in the game of Christ's mission, our feet will follow. This is a real option. We can step up to the plate and do our part. We can play our unique position to the best of our abilities. With whatever spiritual gifts we've been given by the grace of God, we can make disciples, every one of us. What I mean is that we can learn to live and love like Jesus, and we can help others do the same. That's basically what it means to make disciples, to live and love like Jesus ourselves and help others do the same, even others who currently feel far from God. We can do this. (laughs) We can make disciples. Yes, you too. Not on your own authority, not in your own power, but more on that to come. But we can do this. This is what Jesus commands us to do in our scripture passage. And none of us get a pass. He's not talking just to pastors here. He's talking to the 11 disciples and to us too. Did you not know when you were baptized into Christ's church, you were baptized into Christ's mission? The mission is to make disciples of all nations. But I'm not equipped to make disciples. It doesn't fit my personality. I don't have enough faith to do it. I go to church every Sunday and pay my tithes and volunteer once in a while. Isn't that enough? You'll forgive me if I don't make disciples, won't you, Lord? We have many excuses for not doing as Jesus says. So did the first band of disciples. Just consider their first impression of the once dead, now alive Jesus. The crucified one has just become the risen one. Against all odds, he's standing right before their eyes, scar marks visible in his wrists and legs. And this is how they respond to him. Verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. They worshipped him, and so do we 2,000 years later. But some doubted us too. Even still, Jesus sends us out to further the mission of Jesus in the world. You see, Jesus knows us. He knows what he's getting into. He knows exactly who he has drafted to play on his team. Non-sports people, please forgive me for all the sports metaphors today. Stephanie will come back and preach someday, and she'll ignore the sports stuff, but I'm sorry, that's just where I am today. (laughs) Jesus knows exactly who he's drafted to play on his team. He knows our skills, or lack thereof. He knows our strengths and weaknesses. He knows how we sometimes feel like the best contribution we can make is warming the bench or the pews. Jesus knows about our little faith. But what does he say about those with little faith? If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, he says, if, if that's the size of your faith, if it's no bigger than the, the tiniest mustard seed, if you have this faith, nothing will be impossible you. So the fact of the disciples' doubt, do not throw Jesus off course. Quietly overlooking their doubt, Jesus gives these worshiping, doubting disciples a job to do. Instead of 
correcting their doubt or shaming them for it or attacking it in some other way, Jesus gives the Great Commission. Why does he handle their doubt in this way? I think it's because Jesus knows something about doubt that we don't. Jesus knows that we will win our war with doubt simply by obeying his mission command. We will win our war with doubt by obeying his mission command. Follow him and you will know him, missionary Albert Schweitzer says. Follow him and you will know him. So despite their doubts, the first disciples chose to follow him. I will follow, they sang. (laughs) They got their heads in the game and swung for the fences. And what a world of difference it has made. Literally, the world is a far different place, a far better place, because of what these first disciples did. It's quite difficult, even for skeptics, to argue otherwise. Think of, all, think of all the social services, the hospitals and schools that were started in Jesus' name throughout the centuries. Think of the beauty created in Jesus' name through art and architecture and music. Think of Notre Dame, which has already raised $1 billion to restore it to its former glory. It, too, was built in Jesus' name. Think of the advancement of medicine and science which, if you do your research, mostly began in Jesus' name, too. Because of the authority of Jesus and the empowering presence of his Spirit, and because the first generation of Christians chose to get in the game, the world is a far better place. Listen to how Michael Green describes the early days in his book, Evangelism in the Early Church. This book is a witness to me that we should not judge a book by its cover. It's $4.95 when it was written in 1970. But you know what? History doesn't change all that much, so that's a good thing. Listen to how he starts his book. He says, It was a small group of 11 men whom Jesus commissioned to carry on his work and bring the gospel to the whole world. They were not distinguished. They were not educated. They had no influential backers in their own nation. They were nobodies. If they had stopped to weigh up the possibilities of succeeding in their mission, even granted that their their conviction that Jesus was alive and that his spirit went with them to equip them, their hearts must surely have sunk. So heavily were the odds weighted against them. How could they possibly succeed? And yet, they did. Therefore, one of those eleven, the one named Peter, joyfully exclaims, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, we have been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is our joyful Easter exclamation too, when we obey Jesus' great commission. When we step up to the plate, when we realize that the Easter news is meant to be shared, when we see the work of God through us, this word of praise will naturally burst from within us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That will be our happy song when we do the work of making disciples.
I believe when we do these things, when we get serious about making disciples out of the material of not yet disciples, the long-term result will be the same as it was in the early church. Call me crazy, or worse, call me an optimist, but I believe the end result will be a greater Lafayette community renewed by the love and power of God. Even closer to home, the end result will be a Heartland Community Church renewed by the love and power of God. You and I, too, will personally be renewed by the Spirit of the living Christ when we step up to the work of making disciples. It already happened with the first band of disciples, and it will happen with us, too, if we obey Jesus' command in the Great Commission. Do you want this kind of renewal? If so, you have a choice to make. I have a choice to make. We can sit on our hands or we can play to win. What will we do? Jesus has already put us on the field. And as long as we're Christians, there's no getting off of it. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. Because that's purpose. That's making a difference in the world. That's a reason to get out of bed in the morning. So now that we're on the field, what's our next move? The living Christ urges us to make disciples. Let me spell out what this means in more detail. For some of you, this will be review, but I just want to make sure we're all on the same page here because this is hugely important. This is the mission, my friends. This is Christ's mission, and as Christ's followers, it ought to be the mission of our lives too. Any other mission is far too small for us who have been created in God's image. Here's the message. Here's the, the mission. Mathe tusate, disciple. The ancient Greek word was most often used in the classroom. Mathe tusate. It means to apprentice, to mentor, to educate. It's a surprising word for Jesus to choose to describe the key component of his mission. We church folks might expect something more grand, like convert or win the nations, but Jesus chooses a slower, lower-profile word for us. Mathe tusate, disciple. Disciple the nations. That's our task. Why does Jesus choose such a humble word? I think it's because only the risen Lord can do the big things, the big things like convert, win, bring lasting change. But for our part, we can disciple. Notice the sandwich structure of our passage. It begins and ends with the mission commander, who is Jesus. I, Jesus, am in complete charge around here. And then in the middle are the mission commands. So you move out, disciple, baptize, teach. It ends with the mission commander's word once more. I, Jesus, will support you as you do this all the time. So relax and enjoy. 
I love how Matthew scholar Dale Bruner responds to this. He writes, Disciples will do the little thing of discipling others. That is, they will spend time with people in the confidence that sooner or later, the risen Jesus, with all his authority, will create in some of these people the decision to be baptized and then to follow Jesus. I think he's right on. (laughs) Disciples, that's us, all of us, disciples will do the little thing of discipling others. That is, they will spend time with people in the confidence that sooner or later, the risen Jesus, with all his authority, will create in some of these people the decision to be baptized and to follow Jesus. So what do you think? Can we spend time with people? Specifically, I mean, can you spend time with people who are not following Jesus at the present moment? Or can you only spend time with other Christians? This is Jesus' plan for church growth, it seems. One disciple of Jesus spending time with a not-yet-disciple of Jesus. And over the course of time, sometimes it'll take years, Jesus will reveal himself to some of them as the risen Lord. Well, that strategy of church growth will never work, (laughs) but it did. This is precisely what the early church did. They spent time with people who were not yet disciples And this is how the early church grew. If you don't believe me, read with me the book, Evangelism in the Early Church. It's a (laughs) page-turner. No fancy programs, no entertainment spectacles. They didn't even have church buildings for several generations. Think about that. They met in homes. What they possessed, though, was far greater than any of these things. They had the authority of Jesus above them, the constant companionship of Jesus within them, and the teachings of Jesus in front of them. That was enough to change the world. (laughs) These teachings of Jesus, as you recall from the Great Commission, these made up their discipleship manual. With Jesus' teachings in hand, They discipled, not yet disciples. His teachings were their curriculum. That's how they mentored others. By, verse 20, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus had commanded them. Teachings of Jesus were the source of their own personal, gradual transformation into Christ-likeness. With these same teachings, they taught others to become like Jesus too. Let's not neglect verse 20 of the Great Commission. The mission work, the mission doesn't work without a genuine process of becoming more like Christ by learning how to obey, by learning how to obey his teachings. So can we also, can you and I teach not yet disciples to become like Jesus Can our own living example serve as the primary reason why not-yet-disciples would even consider such a thing? With Jesus as our authority, 
and the Spirit as our constant companion, we can. If the church is going to grow, we must. Like it or not, <laughs> it seems that the responsibility falls on each and every one of us who really believe that Christ is risen. He is risen for the mission of discipling the nations. So let's take a breath for a minute, shall we? How does this method of church growth resonate with you? This method of slowly spending time with not yet disciples, schooling them in the ways of Jesus? After studying the Gospel of Matthew the last four months, it all makes perfect sense to me. It all connects. It all sounds so simple and so practical and doable, this method of discipleship, of church growth. But if I'm honest, it all seems so foreign to what we usually busy ourselves with as a church. To put it more personally, it all sounds so different from what I usually busy myself with during the work week as a pastor. What am I to do with the discrepancy? Spirit of Christ, help me change. Spirit of Christ, help us change. Change is so hard, isn't it? Craig Barnes was right. We prefer the misery we know to the mystery we don't. But let me tell it to you straight. If this church is going to grow, the church must change. That means each of us in this church must change too, including myself. How? We must stop being a church that does outreach. And we must become a church that is outreach. Here's what I mean. I'm taking my cues from RCA pastor Kevin Harney. Pastor Harney has helped several churches make this difficult but massively fruitful shift. Collectively, here's what he says, collectively, outreach must be a part of our DNA, our culture, one of our core values as a community of Jesus followers. Individually, outreach must become a lifestyle. It's just who we are as a people, disciples of Jesus. We are people who reach out to not yet disciples of Jesus with the love and message of Jesus. This is what the early Christians did. This is how the early church grew, despite persecutions of all kinds. And this is how we, too, have inherited the good news of Christ's death and resurrection for us because of outreach, the outreach of others. How will others receive that same good news if not for our outreach? Yes, we will all do this in our own unique ways. Yes, in ways that fit the personality that God gave us, but we must reach out. We all must seek relationships with not yet disciples. We all must pray for them earnestly and intentionally. We all must pray that Jesus' teachings and our living witness to Jesus' teachings will be used by God to make new disciples of Jesus. When this happens, <laughs> when this happens we will joyfully celebrate with the waters of baptism, a symbol of a new life that has been immersed in the magnificent reality of our loving God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
submit to you that churches that are growing, and the growth is not just members from other churches, but not yet disciples becoming disciples of Jesus, I submit to you that these churches are communities in which outreach happens naturally, organically, because that's just who they are. If I'm honest with you, I'm not trying to take you on a guilt trip or point any fingers. If any fingers are being pointed, they're at myself as the pastor. But if I'm honest with you, I don't believe outreach is who we are. At least not yet. Not in the way that Jesus is talking about in the Great Commission. Forming relationships with not yet disciples. Modeling to them what it means to live in love like Jesus. And all of this with joy and delight in our hearts. Not guilt and resentment toward the pastor for making us do it. (laughs) I think we're getting closer. Perhaps that's all a pastor can hope for. But we've got to keep moving forward. Why? (laughs) Not for our own sake, but for the sake of others. There are people in our community who are suffering from a deficiency of love. The misery of so many people in our community demand that we act. If we are really going to love them, and if we really believe the love of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus make a difference for their lives, if we believe that, that Jesus is helpful to people's real lives, then we must keep moving forward. We also must keep moving forward if we want to experience the always with us presence of God. Do you want to experience more of the presence of God in your life? <laughs> Hands up, yeah. <laughs> Some scholars go so far as to say that Jesus' promise at the end of the Great Commission will only become a reality for those of us who do what it says. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, to you who disciple the nations. I tend to think that God is with all of us all the time, failing disciples included, for in God we live and move and have our being. But from my own experience, I do think it's true that Christ's presence becomes more real to us when we are actively engaged in the work of furthering Christ's mission. As Jesus said in Matthew 25, when you did this to the least of these, you did it unto me. So here's the plan. Can you cue the, I'm cueing the video here. If it seems agreeable to you, here's the plan. The plan comes from this pastor, Kevin Harney's work of helping several churches inject outreach into their bloodstream. He lays out a three-step process a church must go through to become a church that doesn't just do outreach, but that is outreach. So instead of me talking about it, we're going to listen to the expert himself, as long as we can get it up here. Well, I want to talk with you about the evolution of organic outreach. What I mean by that is that every church has a journey they go on to becoming more and more focused on reaching their local community and their world with the gospel. 
And for many churches, this is their model. I call this push pins. Churches that have, have a, a globe or a picture of the world, and they take little push pins like this, and they'll say, well, we, we put a pin here and here. We send some money over here. We send some missionaries there. We send some prayers over here. And for many churches, they're actually kind of sending their, their prayers and their money and their, and, and their resources and their people far away. And the idea is, here in the church, we care about the world. So we pray, we fund, and we send far away out into the mission field. And then we can say, look at we're giving money and we're praying and we're helping people out there far away. Now, is this a good model? Yes. Please hear me. Keep giving money to missions, keep praying for missionaries, keep sending people into the mission field. But listen closely, that's not enough. Because here's the big problem. When we see this as our entire outreach ministry... We don't have to do anything except for pray and give some money. We don't have to engage our next door neighbor and our family members with the good news of Jesus. And organic outreach is about engaging every person in the church and the work of outreach. Not just sending money, not just sending prayers as important as that is. Not just going on an occasional every three year short term mission trip, but becoming God's missionaries right where we live. And so, so there's kind of a second model and I call this a committee approach. And the second model is the idea that in the local church, churches will begin to say, listen, you know, we have a men's ministry and we have a women's ministry and we have a nursery for the children and we have some children's ministry for the, the little toddlers and we have a youth ministry and we have a church board and we have a worship service. So this, these are things that churches will do. And we have a team of people that lead each of these ministries. So here's what we'll do. We'll get a committee or a team that will be our outreach or our mission or our evangelism team. And that group of people is in charge of making sure outreach happens. Now, when a church does this, it's a next step forward in that process. They've gone from just pushpins, praying and sending far away, to now they're saying, we're going to reach our community. But here's the problem. This group right here, everybody sees them as the ones who do outreach. And so you say, well, well women's ministry doesn't do outreach. We minister to women who are Christians. And youth ministry doesn't do outreach. We, miss, we minister to kids that are youth and, and young people, and we minister to them. And if they say, well, who does outreach? Everyone says, they do. So now some outreach is happening, but it's not happening through the whole life of the church. It's not mobilizing every Christian to naturally share their faith. So the third model is what I call organic outreach. This is organic outreach for a local church. And this organic outreach is helping every ministry have a heart and a vision to reach out. So here's what you do. Men's ministry becomes outreach. Part of what they do is reach men in their community. Women's ministry reaches out to women in their community. The nursery cares about the littlest ones in the community and ministers when they come. And the children's ministry, the youth ministry, the church board, the worship team, all of them are thinking about outreach. All of a sudden, the thinking is no longer, oh, it's, it's those people over there that do evangelism. The thinking is, it's all of us that are reaching out naturally with our faith. And so in the book, Organic Outreach for Churches, we teach you how to get a team of people, leaders from every ministry, and they become your outreach influence team. These are the ones who become the ones who lead your church forward in outreach. So if you plan something for outreach, and it's planned by the leader of men, and the leader of women, and the leader of the nursery, and the leader of the children, and the youth, and the board, and the worship team, whether you're a church of 50 people or a church of 500 people, it doesn't matter. If the leaders of all your ministries are part of the outreach team, when you plan outreach in your community, who's part of it? And here's the answer. Everybody. In the committee model, who's part of it? 
just the committee. And they try to beg people, please be part of what we're doing. But when you structure your outreach around every ministry of your local church, all of a sudden you're equipping and training and mobilizing every single Christian in your church to naturally share their faith. So push pins, missions, giving, keep doing it. Keep sending more resources out to the world. A committee, it's fine if you have a team of people that leads this, but at the end of the day, if you want to have dynamic, strong outreach in your church, you need the leaders of every ministry of your church. And your church might be a small church that has three or four different ministries. That's fine. You may be a bigger church and you have 10 or 12 ministries. That's fine. But outreach needs to be in the heart and the middle of all you do as a local church. That's the organic outreach model for local churches. don't know is that Pastor Kevin cares so much about this because he was a punk kid far from Jesus. If someone would have measured up the kids who might be open to the gospel, he would not have been among them. <laughs> but someone took the step. Someone who had outreach in his DNA reached out to this punk kid and he responded to the love and teachings of Jesus. Now he's a pastor, teaching us how to continue to reach those same punk kids. So what do you think, Heartland Community Church? Can we become an outreach church, a missionary church, not just a church that does outreach from time to time? Or is this sermon headed straight for the archive file because we don't want to change? Christ is risen he is risen indeed, and he's risen for mission. Let us pray. Lord, we are your worshiping, doubting disciples. We need to hear your words. Don't be afraid, for I will be with you always. All authority has been given to me. So Lord, because we trust you as an act of faith, we seek to obey your great commission. Help each and every one of us know what that means for us personally and help us as a church know what it means for us collectively. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.